Hi, sissy. Hi, peeps. Hey, welcome um, to Launch Love Podcast. Welcome. Thank uh, you. Thanks for welcoming me. What's your name? I'm Summer Phoenix. I'm Rain Phoenix. That's cool. Welcome to the show, a space for fame creatives to launch the next wave of music rebels. Also an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. We are so happy to be with you today. We have a very special guest, an iconic artist, somebody who has not only made fun, badass music, but also changed culture in the short time he has been on the planet. And he's got many more years. Mr. Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo fame is our famed creative today, and he's launching his artist Ward White. So we hope you'll sit back, relax and enjoy the flight. It's so fun. It's so good. It's a, such a he's such an incredible person. And it was just an absolute joy to get to sit down with him and and listen to him and also watch him and just be in his presence was just Amazing. Yeah. And his space. We went to Mutato, which is his actual space where he does all his scoring and all his music. And uh, so like a museum. So if of you watch instruments. And yeah. And if you creation. watch YouTube, you can watch some of that because we went there and filmed the whole thing. So um, follow us everywhere at Launch Left. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. And thank you. Thank you. I'm really bad with timelines, names, and all sorts of specific things. <laughs> um, it's kind of like um, a mental version of myopia, I guess. But, um, but we're here because of this guy right here, Ward White. Um, I, I heard his music uh, a number of years ago, and um, I just just became interested in him and uh, just kind of kept an eye on things. And it just happened that recently he played a new album for me and um, I was struck by it. You know, it's like, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in a business where I get sent tapes all the time from people and I dodge them because you can't, you can't listen to everybody's music, you know, it just, it, it you just become oversaturated and it fills your head with clutter in a way, you know, at a certain point. If you're trying to like write something for something and then you're hearing like 10 new concepts that day, it kind of gets in your way. But this guy's music, when I heard this album, and I heard it through the speaker that was like this big. It was like this little crappy... It was the cat. It was a little, it was a cat it was a little cartoon it was a cat. cat. cat yeah. or something, yeah, that my daughter had. and, and you know, it's like um, nowadays, now that technology is so amazing, it's like um, at my house, for instance, we're like less capable of playing music than, than we were back in the old days when it was just, oh, you had a tape player and you had a, uh, a turntable. I did. We had that struggle trying to find a way to actually listen to music right. in your house. <laughs> but uh, on a cat, on, on a little plastic cat, I, I love this album and what, what a... What I was really struck by in particular is that um, through that cat, <laughs> actually it sounded, it sounded, it kind of tested out, you know, on other speaker systems too. I, I really <laughs> liked it that he, that Ward had this kind of, um, kind of reinvention of a, of a David Bowie kind of sound to his voice that, I, that really struck me, you know, and, and uh, I hadn't heard anybody singing like that. 
uh, in a long time, and um, it it made it made me really get curious about everything. So I just started listening to a lot of his music. Right on. Yeah. And Ward White, what is the name of that record that he's talking about? Uh, this record is called Diminish. Uh huh. And uh, that's now out. I, I want to say November. Uh, it's called a soft release where it's it's happening. Yeah. yeah. Building. It's, yeah. Exactly. We're still in the process of it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's how I like to think about it, too. It's kind of it's a, just, it's a it's slow build. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's exactly. A, it, if nobody's heard it, it's brand new. Exactly. You know, that's, exactly. that's brand the new idea. So you could... It, Did you play with your vocal range throughout? Like, because I noticed that, too. There, I mean, there's some high stuff in there, and... It, you know, is that something that you were intentionally doing, or is that something that was always in you in all of your music? It's, uh, you know, I came to it uh, over time, I yeah. think. Uh, initially, when I started singing, uh, it was really more baritone range. Um, and, uh, you know, I, as I started making records and, and layering vocals, you know, when you're doing harmonies with yourself, which yeah. is something that I've always loved to do, uh, you know, you push yourself to do all the parts. So as you get into higher and higher parts, I actually had a few people say to me, it's like, you know, I, uh, your singing's okay down here, but something about when you get up into this higher range, it, it just has a, a better feel to it. It just has something. And so sometimes you have to sing for a long time to really learn what your natural range is. You know, yeah. I, I think just ultimately I'm a, I'm a, a high tenor. Um, and interestingly don't have much of a, of a lower range so as I sort of embrace that and realize yeah I guess I, you know I'll just keep going up and see what happens it, it started to feel more comfortable uh, to work up there and I, I think it is it, it is the natural range uh, for me so it's not really I don't really even think of it as falsetto so much because it doesn't it's not pushed to that degree um, and often I, I really don't have a very good falsetto at all. Uh, usually baritones have the best real piercing falsetto. It's this almost like f what they call flipping the voice, you know. Um, so yeah, it just feels natural to me. Which is funny because it's actually quite surprising when you hear it and really delightful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, Seriously, and I, you know, I agree. It's it was just like, what? Where did this come from? Because you don't start there, but you get there, and it, it's you know, surprising. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, thank you for that. I, I um, you know, I do I do enjoy being able to 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 push that stuff, and I know sometimes it can be a little, sometimes it's strange to folks. So here, and it doesn't quite match up with what they're they're expecting, but. You know, singers that I've uh, always loved, you know, had that ability to, to, to go to those stratospheric places sometimes. I mean, I love Bowie, obviously, uh, you know, but, you know, Sparks Records and, uh, you know, just ELO Records with the, the layering of the vocals. It just seemed very natural to me to go to those, to those high places, you know, and I adore Roy Orbison, you know, who was the, the master of, of getting from you know, north to south in, in <laughs> you know, a minute and a half. Um, so the next record's called Harmonizing With Myself. Harmonizing With Myself. Well, that's, that's my, that's actually my self-help book. It's, you know, Harmonizing With Myself, be on the cover like this. 
Do you play uh, all the instruments, or do you have a band that plays with you? Or you just, how do you? How did you make the record? Um, I, I do all the vocals and play the guitars on it. On, on previous records, I've also played the bass. Um, but I always work with with drummers and and keyboardists as well. So on this record, um, a drummer named Mark Stepro played with me, who's a fantastic musician who. I met maybe 10 years ago uh, in, in New York, and we did a record then. And he came to LA maybe five years ago, and I reconnected with him when, when we came out. And I said, hey, I don't know anybody here. You know, I spent my whole life in New York. You gotta want to make this record. You're on it. Tell me who I should work with. Um, and initially, he set me up with a guy named Tyler Chester. We made a record uh, the year before this one um, called As Consolation. And then on this record, uh, an engineer and bass player named uh, John Spiker, who uh, his primary gig is with Tenacious D. So that's yes. been <laughs> <laughs> so he's been he's been working with them and engineering and producing stuff for them for for years. And he plays bass with them when they do the the touring as well. Which brings me to a question that I've been wanting to ask, honestly, both of you. But how much does comedy or humor play a role in your songwriting? Uh, I, I, to me, it, it's, it's a huge component. Uh, you know, one of the things that I often find will keep me from being able to really engage with an artist is if they absolutely, at the end of the day, don't have a goddamn sense of humor about themselves. Yeah. And you can tell who, who does and who doesn't. And there's just, ultimately that's just where it gets tiring because I, I don't really see any daylight between different forms of writing. And if you're really going to, to write in a way that is personal or, or is honest about anything in life, you have to be able to include all of the elements that come into it. So, you know, just because I'm writing a sad song it doesn't mean that you can't. I mean, there's humor in everything. I, I'm, I, that kind of dark humor is how I get along. So, you know, it's, it's like people making jokes at a funeral. You have to. You know, it's not everyone's, not, it's, you know, you can't just be weeping the whole time because misery is boring. So was it hard for you two to become friends because Mark is so has zero humor and zero dark comedy in his life? <laughs> I do find, you know, sometimes it's just over and it's like, all right. You know. I'll try to dumb it down, Mark. Yeah, you know, it's like, I, this guy, I really like him because he seems like a poet to me. Uh, that's what I like about his songs. They, they seem like poetry and he's telling stories in a, in a really interesting fashion. And uh, yeah, he's got, a, he's got a good kind of self-deprecating sense of humor about him just in his deliveries all the time. And I, I appreciate that from people. Because uh, angry young men, you know, like 16, 17-year-olders, you can kind of put up with that a little bit because they're just in shock at finding out that, that things aren't, aren't the way they should be or the way you would want them to be. But angry old men get boring, so, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I like people with a sense of humor. Yeah. You're not angry, but you're old. Yeah. Basically. Well, I applied. He's older than 17. I applied <laughs> for the I was using 17 as uh, I just wasn't in the bracket. I didn't fly at all. So, you know. Okay. Yeah. I think the demarcation line is somewhere at 20. So, you know. no, so I've just made it. Yeah. You just made it. Just made it. What does that say about us? He didn't say o older women. So I think we're okay still. 
Maybe we're, being, are we exempt? Well, you two are eternally youthful, I can tell already. I think Whoa, that's, let's you're, make you're sure lucky to zoom you guys in on have that. the right. Yeah. Zoom in on that camera. So that's one of the chapters right there. This chapter exactly. is eternally youthful. Yeah, exactly. So I know Bowie came up a few times, when, uh, and I remember in the earlier today, before we were on camera, you were sharing with me a little story about Mark and Bowie early years. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, as, as I understand it, you know, uh, Devo were making the trek from Akron to, to play Max's Kansas City fairly regularly, you know, which was... It was uh, upstairs at Max's, right? Was, yeah, was uh, fairly regularly. I think it it added up to like three or four shows <laughs> yeah. over the summer of '77 and just into '78. That's about it. Right, but uh, but that's still but yeah, pretty regular if you had nothing else you were doing in your life. Well, and then and you, you were know, coming from Akron. Right, we're coming back next week. <laughs> and then for the guys who played those, what as you say, three or four shows, you know, to say at one of those shows you were introduced by David Bowie. Oh, that wrinkle. Is you know, because <laughs> I played a lot of places three or four times, and I don't ever recall him showing up. <laughs> yeah, that. Would I be might have been in the uh, the <laughs> toilet. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't there. How did yeah. that happen? Well, we played. Um, in summer of 77 at Max's Kansas City. And um, we didn't think we were, we were a, a rock band, to be honest with you. That was not our intention. We thought we were agitprop. We thought we were an art movement. We were art devo. That's what we wanted to be. And so we thought, yeah, we're going to make films. We're going to have our own, uh, what, what, did, what did they call the fourth channel, UHF or VHF? What was, remember there used to be like ABC, NBC, CBS, and then there was a fourth like channel. Like VHF and Access? And yeah, an Access cable. Well, channels, yeah. Before channels, there was cable. Right. The channels E in New York when so, yeah, was the early so, public access thing. So this was, so even before that there was just like always one public access channel that had all the odd stuff on it, you know. You'd, and uh, we thought, we're going to get our own access channel, the de-evolution channel. That's, we're going to re-educate America that, that um, you know, about mutation, not stagnation, and, you know, that man is not the center of the universe. We're actually the insane species that is destroying our planet and all the other So species. a psychic channel. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, among other things, yeah. And maybe there'd be an aerobics class, too. But... But anyhow, so, the de so we came class. out and we played, but we we played a show, and after we're, after the show, we got interviewed, and uh, somebody interviewed us for some local New York magazine. They said, who would you like to have produce you guys if you ever got a record deal? And I go, Brian Eno and David Bowie. And, and I had reasons for both of them, because I, they were my two favorite artists. And... Um, so when you know it, we came back a couple weeks later and Brian Eno showed up with Robert Fripp and, uh, and he said, yeah, I want to work with you guys. We go, well, we don't have a record deal. He goes, mm, we won't worry about that. Wow. We'll just, and uh, so then a week after we played that show, it's like um, he told David Bowie, because I, I had said in this article that I wanted them to produce us. And, and he showed up, and he came and watched. And, and when you played at Max's in those days, you played a, an opening set, and then the other band went on, um, Teenage Jesus or whoever it was. That, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. Yeah, they, they probably were on that night, uh, the other band. Or, or um, 
or what was the two guy band? Uh, Marty. Suicide. Suicide. Yeah, or else it was Suicide. You know, one of those bands would be our, the band that we'd swap off with. And then after our first set, David Bowie came backstage and he said, "Hey, I, I." I heard you guys wanted me to work with you, and we said, yeah. And he said, well, let's go to Germany. Sure. No, he said, let's go to Japan. Yeah, he right. said, let's go to Japan. Ooh. He said, the only thing that could throw it off is I might get to be in this movie in Germany, and so, called Gigolo or something. And so we said, we're going to be sleeping in a band tonight, so whatever, <laughs> whatever you come so, up with works So we'll get us. back to you. And, uh, yeah, so he, when our second set started, he came out on stage wow. and introduced us and called us Devour or something like that. Um, um, ironically, and nobody knows this yet, matter of fact, this will be the first that Brian Eno finds out about it, is Brian Eno's roommate at the time was the guy who started the Mug Club. I don't remember names, I already warned you about that. So um, this guy showed up the same night that David Bowie showed up and you know Max's has a stage about this tall and you they were sitting right there they had two guys sitting there with 16 millimeter cameras and they shot the show per, parts of it because they had like four minute reels of film or whatever a reel of 16 millimeter film was and they shot these films and they'd be changing them so between the two of them they got like about 30 minutes of the show but they do have David Bowie wow. introducing the band and Somebody found this, all these rusted reels of film about three years ago in New Jersey at a garage sale. Some kid bought this whole stack of reels and he's looking at them and he's like, this looks like Brian Eno doing something. And I, I haven't looked at the Brian Eno ones yet, but um, we're transferring them now. But we wow. transferred the Debo ones and we got like about 30 minutes worth of footage. And, and then we wow. found a, an audio tape that matches up with it. So it has David Bowie doing the intro and stuff. So Incredible. something will happen with that. I don't know what yet. But Yeah, maybe it'll be on launch left on this segment. There, that could be you it. Could do you like could do like five the, minutes of the, yeah, so we could cut it uh, in with this. <clears throat> premier. It seems legit, right? I've done most of my content anyway. Put that in there. That's better. I've watched that. I have a question, though, about two sets, because that's so not the normal like rock band thing anymore, right? Anymore, it's no. a jazz, but like you hear about it in jazz more, that you did two sets of music, Devo. So you had like one set. and we did then, two shows, yeah. And, is, and other bands were between you? And did so you replay band, the yeah, same songs? Oh, I don't remember. I know we um, started both sets the same, I, I think. I can't remember. We did, we did, you know, I've done thousands of shows. I can't remember. Well, R.E.M. Exactly, would do that, we, too. But right. we were known as the band. They go, people would say, who saw the first or second show, they go, okay. So this Bantham, Ohio comes out. They put up a screen, and they show a film of their self playing songs. And then they, come, then they take it down, and then they come out and play the songs. Mm. So that's, that's what people were saying about us back in those days. I think repeating is a great thing, though, for an audience that may have either missed it or heard, oh, you and then you come back on and they're able to digest it. And I know that R.A.M.'s manager once told, like when they were first starting out, always they would play the song that was the most catchy twice in the set. Yeah, right. They played at the beginning and at the end. We didn't and that have anything like that was the catchy. So we, but we had a I lot think of all music, your songs so are catchy. Did. I beg to differ. We had a lot of music, so we probably played two totally different sets. But, um, but that night, you know, he 
him and Nino, they basically said, we said, well, we don't have a record deal. We can't do it. And they go, we'll pay for it. And they, wow. they were our patrons and, and flew us to Germany and recorded a record with us. And that's how it started. Did and that that's I, how it should be. And then I loved, and, but I got to say, it's like hearing Ward's latest album, it just made me, <coughs> made me think of David because last year was a big year, you know, yeah. in, in the world of David Bowie anyhow. And, uh, and um, yeah. it, it, that probably made, it, made me fonder for his music, even just that connection. And are you like an avid fan of Bowie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, you know, uh, my whole life, you know, bordering on obsession. Mm -hmm. He was certainly, it, you know, everybody brings something to the table as an artist, but if you pick somebody to be sort of the gold standard, it was always Bowie. For me. Twelve string? Do you play? Uh, yeah, yeah. Play all the strings. Right. How many strings yet? I'll play the strings. <laughs> Heart strings? Do you play? Oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> but not with the twelve string though. It's too hard to hold down. <laughs> but yeah, he was. Uh, he was. He's always kind of been it for me. And sadly, I never. I never met him. But my only encounter with with Bowie was um, he was living in the same building with uh, Ian Schrager, who lived on the top floor. Bowie had the floor underneath him, and then underneath him was a guy named Steve Paul, who passed away a couple of years ago. But Steve Paul had a club called The Scene uh, in the 60s that was like the... The scene. The, the scene, the hip scene. That's where everybody mm -hmm. went. And he, he, ended up, he was a manager as well. He, he uh, managed Tim Buckley for a while and Johnny and Edgar Winter and different people through the 70s. But he had, he had his hands in a lot of stuff. But he had this loft floor underneath. So through various circumstances, I was invited to go have dinner at his house with, with some other friends. And uh, when I showed up, he came in street level past the, the doorman there. And then he walked to the lobby to get to the elevator bank. And then to the left were the mailboxes. And there were only four mailboxes in this little alcove. And my hand to God as I come up to this elevator and I look over in the mail alcove and there's Bowie like trying to prize junk mail out of one of those little New York with a hand Valpac coupons and this and the crate and barrel catalog residence. I'm like, so I, this it was really just total mindfuck because it's David Bowie doesn't get junk mail. And he does. <laughs> he doesn't clunk in his mail. And then he walks to the elevator and I'm standing there and I just, the, the doors open and we both get in and I don't even look at him and I'm thinking, just like interior monolith, don't say anything, don't say anything, <laughs> don't say anything. And I just know next to me, right him looking straight down was, please don't say anything, please don't say anything. <laughs> Little mail bundle. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. That was my only, my only. Well played. Yes. Well played. With, with David. So, gentlemen, <laughs> scholars, musicians, composers, left of center artists. Uh, I'm curious about what you all think about the landscape, the current musical landscape of singles, like how bands put out singles more than they do records these days. If you have an opinion about that. Uh, yeah, I do. As as uh, a person who makes albums and um, you know starts the process from the ground up with an album 
in mind, uh, with that specific format in mind, uh, so as to say that it's never just oh, I've written a couple of songs. It's it's these are songs that are fitting together into this program. I'm thinking about how they're going to be sequenced. Uh, you know, what are the arrangement approaches? What's this holistic thought? I mean, all the way down. And if you've been doing this a long time as someone who makes their own up, you're thinking artwork, you're thinking titles, you're thinking all of it ahead of the game. Uh, so that takes a whole, uh, you know, different set of, of uh, I just sort of artistic focus and that, that I think is missing in the single uh, release model. And certainly it's valid. I mean, that's where we were before the long player. It was all singles, you know, but, it, but that was really just a matter of expediency because, you know, rock and roll and pop music at the time was considered, you know, pretty disposable. So the idea that you could go into the studio, you go in with Shell Talmy and you'd make a, a single in two hours and it was out in the shops at the end of the week. You know, it was just easy, it was quick, it was throwaway and you could do it. And that was great, you know, and there's, but, you know, when the album came to be, if that's really where you're working, it, you, you think about it in different ways. And you can think more cinematically, you can think novelistically, you know, you can stretch that as far as you want. So to see that kind of falling away, um, you know, uh, hurts me. Uh, you know, I adored albums, I fetishized albums as a kid, you know, just even the physical, the vinyl, gatefolds that you could open, it was a whole experience, you would, there were lyrics, there were credits. And if you're a person who does this, that was a real education there. You started to learn all these names and what they did. You might not have known what it meant, you know, I didn't know who the mastering engineer was, but I would see the name and then I'd want to go find out who that was. I mean, and to this day, I can tell you everyone who played everything on every record I've ever heard. It's wow. just, it's the way you start to catalog all this. So in many ways, I think the death knell for the album was the shuffle feature. Mm -hmm. Uh, in iTunes mm -hmm. and with iPods. I think that <laughs> that was really that was the beginning of it all going to hell Because if you're a person who makes records you put effort into sequencing. Yeah. Sequencing is right. huge. Just in mm -hmm. the editing of a, of a movie, you know, mm -hmm. these people live and die for this and they just have someone put it on and then it comes in with like the ballad that's halfway through side two, it's like, no, you can't start from there. You know, you're right. not gonna learn anything. This is an arc, I've made an arc. <laughs> so I was just, um, it's tough. And so as people have become more attuned to listening for singles, the attention span has really dropped as well. And of course, that's endemic, you know, to, to this, you know, screen mindset. You know, no mm -hmm. one has time for anything anymore. Um, but even people who are making albums, like I'll go through and look at, you know, the best of lists this year. And of course, I find it, I'm actually at the point now where not only do I not recognize the artist, half the time I, I don't recognize the genre. But then you look and uh, I'm seeing that running lengths on some of these albums are down to like 29 minutes. I'm like, wait a minute, that, that would have been an EP five years ago. You know, it's, I mean, nothing, short records are great. You know, 32 minutes I still think is ideal. Uh, all first three Randy Newman albums, all under 30 minutes, like 28 and a half, 29 minutes. And some of the great albums are there. Same Elvis Costello, first three albums, 30, 31 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's ideal because then you hit it, it's the end, it's like, I gotta hear it again. Boom. Yeah. You do it. Anyway, I'm not sure where we started with well, this. Well, how do you, yeah, I mean, once something becomes lost, it allows for it to be rediscovered, right? So. Do you think that maybe, I mean, there has been such an influx of like vintage being re, and 
it's you know of the time right now that maybe that is becoming a lost art and phasing out but it leaves room for not only rediscovery but also innovation and change and sure um, I mean it's got to happen everything is going to run through its its course with how people consume so we'll say media, you know, if I, I, because if I call it art, it will sound pretentious. But uh, I mean, I, it is an art, and I, I think yes, there has been a resurgence in vinyl, but unfortunately, to me, a lot of that feels pretty disingenuous because I think that people are really focusing on this, the just the actual plastic media, and oh, it's, I like having this. It's like you know, it's like wearing suspenders around, like you don't know what a belt is. It's like you know, it's you know. But it's not about oh, what does this what does this format right. represent right. To, to the art that we can use the, the amount of time allotted here to to set up a you know a whole series of, of, of dramatic peaks and valleys if we care to do right. that. To tell or a bigger story. Tell a bigger story, and yeah. then if you if you are fairly prolific, uh, which I have been, I've essentially endeavored to put a record out every year, year and a half for the last you know, how many, how many years. And as you do that, it, then that becomes the larger story. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, no particular album tells it all. It's just, I look at them as chapters. Mm -hmm. And that way, you know, I, I don't get precious about them. It's like every record I'm making is the one after the last one and before the next one. It's gonna keep going. And I've always admired artists who could do that. People like, uh, like Neil Young or Lou Reed, who were just crank, like speed demons cranking stuff out. And it gets hard to even keep up with it, but what it does allow you to do is it, it, it keeps the music safe from fashion. It keeps it safe from fad. It, it often is a bulwark against uh, the music getting trapped in a lot of the, the trappings of production of a particular era. Like if you make a record in 85 and you don't make another one until 92, you heard the differences in what was happening there. Mm -hmm. They go back to those 80s records, oh my God, what were we thinking? When they say? So if, if the art moves too fast, if it's just put it out, put it out, put it out, put it out, you can look at it on a longer timeline. Mm -hmm. And then it just becomes like this shambling story. It's just like that, which is all that your life as an artist is anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, that way you're not, I'm not, you're not one guy who wears one outfit and does one thing. It's it's just a part of every day. It's like eating cereal like in the morning. Yeah. It's, yeah, I like that. So I, I feel like it's that there's less opportunity for people to express themselves that way because obviously there's there's very little in the way of, of financial support for artist development. I mean, that all went out the window a long time ago. And it's a shame because as we know, all of the, uh, really the, the pillars of the music industry, all of the legacy artists that built the financial behemoth were came out of a system that was built on artist development. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know these artists who didn't have a hit didn't, until three albums in. Mm -hmm. Bruce Springsteen yeah. didn't do anything until three albums in, you know? He was out opening for Chicago for three albums thinking that I, I gotta get out of this because it's a, it's a drag and nobody's yeah. listening. And then Kid Leo starts playing Born to Run. And that was the other thing. You had uh, regional radio that actually broke artists because they weren't all, you know, mm -hmm corporate-owned stations, DJs can pick what they wanted to play. I think it's that time again, in a sense, and much like what Mark was speaking about earlier about Bowie and, and Eno saying, well, we'll just produce your um, record. We don't care that you, have a, you don't have a label. There was we'll, no deal, yeah. We'll do that, and 
it's time for that sort of patron of the arts to rise up and other, you know, iconic artists to tip their hat to art. And that's what Watch Left is about. Is like, hey, yeah. this is such a sea of music and art out there. Like, how do we skim the top and find what's really happening right. without the help of the people we trust? And like, just like we all think, oh, Brian Eno and David Bowie, like Mark now has that platform, you know, and that's like he's chosen you. So to me, that's like what now could be like. There's all these changes happening, but the more that the iconic and big artists who have a bigger microphone use that to uh, tip their hat and say, hey, world, check out this artist, the, the, the closer we are to getting back to that kind of development. Sure. Because people listen to those who have had success, right? And yep. to those with whom they respect. And uh, and so I think it's super important in this climate in, in music that, that that's what we're pointing at more and and allowing artists to have that that freedom to to work and do their craft and not have to wait tables and you know to have a development deal so to speak and that happens just by becoming more mate like by 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 people knowing you exist yeah. and people can get your records oh yeah and then they want to go to your show and then so it's really like as hard as it is with the help of a few like well-known artists, I feel like a lot of people's careers could get that launch, you know? Yeah. yeah you know, the three of us are here basically to hand you the steering wheel of pop culture. We uh, need your, you know, we need your help. Drive, drive, baby, We're putting drive. it in your hands. You all, can be the bus driver. All of pop culture I have to drive? Do yeah. I, does no, that include like center, reality TV and whatever? Uh, you can, you can whatever do whatever you want. You can let now. those off wherever you want to let them off. Do they have to do the ding before I let them off? You get it all. Okay. What if it's not, you know, an actual bus stop after hours? Can I let them off? Yeah. If and, I deem it safe? Well, and we'll give you a stun gun too if you need it. Oh. <laughs> Whatever you, whatever. See now, the now the pot is sweetening right. with this whole driving the bus of pop culture. I'm kind of liking the power. I might go mad with power. See, this has been Most a fa likely. this has been a failed experiment. This is just call it's it. It's been a fantastic. Shut it down. A fantastic interview. Thank you both so much. Uh, Thank and I you. don't even want to call it an interview. This has been a fantastic conversation. Agreed. Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Can't wait to hear you perform. All right, let's do it. They made me fat I helped But now I know that every living thing Just needs protection from itself The shell soaps in the bathroom are a touch of class Where cocktails served at five begin the day Not end Exit up at Western I'll drive Tell Bob that I'm not busy being born Or busy dying just alive Some flights leave too early out of Kennedy And some pricks play that Castro card for years But not today Is there a number I can call? 
Yeah, it's beautiful actually. I love your postcards. I follow you on Instagram and I love, they're always so good. The Calago, it's kind of like, it's an organ. It's got different organ sounds and settings and then it's got uh, a keypad like on a, an accordion. It's, um, it's a, it's a Japanese mutant from the 70s. There weren't that many made of them. So it's going off to get a few little repairs done to it so we can incorporate it into things. It's beautiful. Launch Left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. Everybody, 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 everybody